Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative. My guest is Steve Crone. Steve graduated from the film production program at the USC School of Cinematic Arts and then worked as an advertising executive. He then attended the University of Chicago Law School, moving to Washington, D.C. after graduation and serving as a law clerk to U.S. Supreme Court Justices William J. Brennan and David H. Souter. Crone then began his entertainment career as a talent lawyer at Gang Tire, Raymer & Brown. He then became Executive Vice President of Business and Legal Affairs at Village Roadshow Pictures, eventually rising to President and COO of the company. During Crone's tenure at Village Roadshow, the company released nearly 60 movies. I invited Steve on the show to talk about some recent Supreme Court decisions and to talk a little bit about the film industry. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Steve Crone. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. I know you through Clubhouse, this app that has taken the world really by storm. I was going to say the nation, but it's a global kind of community, which has been, I, I spend way too much time there. Uh, I, I, and I see you on there a lot. I'm not going to judge whether you spend too much time or not, but you run one of the most interesting clubs called Dishwasher Diaries, where we talk about all things, but Actually, we do talk about dishwashers and packing dishwashers, and I want to talk a little bit with you about uh, the Supreme Court, but first, I want to ask you about dishwashers and your passion for this, for this appliance that many people have in their homes. Well, I guess I have to start with the origin story of Dishwasher Diaries. So I was on Clubhouse, like you, uh, I'm on there probably a little too much, and I had just gotten my second COVID vaccination. I was actually sitting outside under a tent in the recovery area after my second shot. Did you get Pfizer or Moderna? I got Pfizer. Excellent. I flicked on the earbuds and went on to Clubhouse and I followed a friend into a room, uh, Salah, and he was talking about the fact that on his honeymoon, he had just gotten married. He was speaking with his wife about how to load the dishwasher, and his perception that there seemed to be a disorder, particularly a male disorder, about having very strong opinions about how to pack a dishwasher. Sometimes someone in the house will repack what someone else did because they don't like the way they did it. This so resonated with me that I jumped on, participated in the conversation, we then talked about a similar disorder involving packing the trunk for a trip and how all the luggage and everything else has to fit into the trunk. Toward the end of this, you know, maybe five, eight minute conversation, I joked, we should have a room tomorrow just to talk about dishwasher loading. I started the room the next day. A couple days later, that became a club called Dishwasher Diaries, as you mentioned. And I said, we're going to do this every day. And indeed, we have done it every day since we are almost at day 50. I think we're at day 45, 46, somewhere in there. It is a remarkable club, which I have, I have begun to frequent, and I really enjoy it. Now, you are a lawyer. 
You also work in the film industry. But one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because you have been a Supreme Court clerk. Uh, you've you've been in the in there with um, the Supremes, as they call them. And I, I, yesterday was a pretty big day in in the life of the court. There were two major decisions that I want to talk through a little bit with you. But I'm just curious, when you were a clerk, what was that like? What's the culture of the court like? I mean, what is what is your everyday experience as a clerk? Are you like how how do how do the, how do the justices interact with each other? Is it collegial? I mean, could you just say a little bit about the culture of the court? Because I think it's something that most Americans don't have any access to or or really sense of. <clears throat> sure. So the first thing I have to say is I was a law clerk for the October 1993 term. So obviously, to the extent I'll talk from my direct personal experience, I'm talking about the culture of the court some time ago. To some extent, it evolves. To some extent, it doesn't. So I'll try to talk about my personal experience as well as as that evolution. The culture is to some extent set by the chief justice because certain protocols are dictated by the chief justice. So uh, October 93 term, when I was there, the only justice that was on the court then that is still on the court now is Justice Thomas. Uh, All eight of the other justices who were sitting justices when I clerked are gone. But in answer to a couple of those key concepts you mentioned in terms of collegiality, et cetera. Uh, Yes, for the most part, it is very collegial. There's a formality to the process by which the court deliberates to decide cases. Um, By the time I got there, under Chief Justice Rehnquist, communication among the justices really did occur overwhelmingly through writing. So after a case is argued, there is a conference where the justices all sit down in a room together and one by one in order, they, from the most senior justice who is always the chief, and then in order of seniority in terms of how long they've been sitting on the Supreme Court, they express their opinion. That might be at length in a difficult or very important case. They might talk for several minutes. Some justices might simply say, I would find for the respondent and move on to the next justice. Based on that conference, opinions are assigned. If the chief justice is in the majority, the chief justice assigns a justice to write the opinion for the court. The chief could assign it to himself or to any other justice in the majority. If the chief justice is not in the majority, the most senior justice in the majority assigns the opinion, again, to him or herself or to any other justice. Once that happens, once that decision is made in the conference, almost all, if not all, future communication about that case is done in writing. So an opinion will be circulated, and then justices will send responsive memos commenting on the opinion, because other justices have to join the opinion, sign on to it without necessarily writing anything separately. So they do that through a, through a written process. Justice so-and-so, I've read your opinion and I have the following thoughts and comments. And that is, in my experience during my period at the court, that is always a memo to the conference. The conference is the word the justices use for the sitting court. So a justice circulates a memo to all, other, all eight other justices making, opinion, making comments on an opinion 
And that's how the revision process goes. So the reason I went into that in detail is because I think a lot of people imagine that the justices are constantly getting together and discussing the cases, discussing the latest drafts of opinions, et cetera. But that's not really how it works, or at least how it worked while I was there. And my understanding is it's still very much the same. Now, everything I just described is only with regard to the majority opinion, so I'll say one more thing. Other justices are free to write concurrences where they agree with the result, but they may have different reasoning or want to emphasize certain points. And of course, one or more justices can also write dissents. Those are not necessarily treated in exactly the same way because a justice may be writing a dissent only for him or herself or only expecting certain other justices to join that dissent or concurrence. And so those may be circulated at least for a time to a more limited group, although obviously eventually those need to be circulated to the conference so that the justices writing various opinions have an opportunity to respond to each other. Justice so-and-so says in the dissent that they disagree with the opinion for this or that reason. Here's why I disagree with that criticism etc., etc. So it's very collegial, but it's also very formal. It's not like justices are wandering down the hall on a regular basis to chat about cases. Again, during my time, it could be now that more of that is going on. I'm not really sure about that. That was a long answer, but I hope it was a, a useful no, one. No, it, yeah, no, it was great. And it, it sounds like it's the most academic culture among the branches of government. Where, where it's just much more, it's it's less, um, like, you know, like when you hear about congressional committees and, and wrangling deals and stuff, that does not sound very academic, right? It sounds like wheeler dealer kind of stuff, right? Nor does often the, what you hear about the executive branch, right? Which is more like managing bureaucracy. What you're describing sounds much more like a graduate school, school seminar. I mean, that where you're, where you're actually um, doing kind of real theoretical exchange with colleagues who are really well-educated. Yeah, I mean, look, appellate decision-making, appellate court decision-making, whether it's at the intermediate federal court level, the so-called courts of appeals or circuit courts of appeals, or the Supreme Court, and that's, you know, in the federal system, uh, the, 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 the coin of the realm is judicial opinions, right? And those are based on, you know, elucidating the applicable law in an area, applying it to the facts, coming up sometimes with new judicial doctrines. So it's a very, very conceptual and intellectual exercise. And as a general rule, you know, Supreme Court justices tend to be very academic folks. Many have been law professors or judges at other uh, levels of the system. And, you know, for the most part, obviously, they're people who've thought about the law on a very serious level. Uh, before you clerk on the Supreme Court, almost all clerks clerk on that intermediate federal court level. I clerked on the D.C. Court of Appeals and so saw it for two years, this system. And yeah, it's very solitary. You know, you sit on the bench for cases and you interact, obviously, with lawyers and other folks in the courtroom. But then all of the judges uh, at the Court of Appeals level or justices at the Supreme Court, you know, they retreat back to their chambers and work with their clerks and do a lot of writing and drafting and rewriting. And we haven't even talked at all about preparation for the cases, which also involves a lot of writing and analysis. Most judges ask a clerk to prepare what's called a bench memo, 
which is a summary of all of the issues and background legal research and whatever that justice requires. And that sort of becomes the the Bible or the primer for, you know, preparing for oral argument. Yeah, it's a it's a very, very heady intellectual exercise. Sometimes the law isn't all that complicated on a certain case, and sometimes it's very, very, very complicated. And the, the other interesting thing that strikes me at the culture of the court is, I guess, it's the branch of government where the peers are most similar in in intellectual aptitude and training. Like that's not the case, right? It, it, necessarily in the executive branch or in, in in the House. I mean, you could have a House member that you know was a, was a C student in college uh, in a committee with a medical doctor that's also in the House, or or a lawyer, or a scientist. You know, it's it just strikes me that it's interesting that the court has such a these people have all come from such a similar culture where that doesn't strike me as the case in the other branches of government. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, there's there there is some diversity in some of the things you mentioned on the Supreme Court, but obviously the funnel that that sort of leads someone to be nominated as a Supreme Court justice and confirmed by the Senate is a funnel which, you know, creates people with very similar backgrounds. Um you know, some diversity, if you go back historically, you know, you've had governors, you know, Earl Warren was the governor of California and then became Supreme Court justice. But for the most part, most of these folks, first of all, did very, very well in law school. Most of them were judges at some other court, whether a state Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals, as we've already talked about. Uh, so yeah, they do tend to have similar backgrounds. Uh, also, interestingly, um, over the last, say, 20 or 30 years, virtually all of the Supreme Court justices have been either Jewish or Catholic, which is also very kind of odd and interesting. Um, I, I have a theory on that, by the way. Um, I do too, but I want to hear yours first. Well, I just I think like both the Catholic tradition with casuistry right where where you know you have these long sort of scholastic arguments in Catholicism around um like just war or these things or is, or when can you get an abortion even like and, and all these kind of and, and in Judaism you have the same thing in Talmudic reasoning right so Protestantism does not have as a culture that sort of casuistic or Talmudic system in the culture so it just doesn't so if you're in Jewish education culture and and society or if you're in Catholic school, like, Gors like Gorsuch, even though he's an Episcopalian, he was trained intellectually in Catholic circles, right? So he kind of has that casuistry. And if you're in a Protestant culture, the casuistry just does, does not, or Talmudic reasoning, it just doesn't really exist in the culture. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'd say it exactly the same way you said it beautifully. But yeah, I think there is something about the Jewish and Catholic traditions. Now, of course, Supreme Court justices don't pick themselves. And so presidents and, of course, the system by which recommendations are made to presidents, notwithstanding what we're both saying, could obviously include people of other faiths, of no faith. But it is interesting how it's kind of worked out that way, that so many of the justices uh, come from that background. Yeah, it's really, it's really funny. Now, in terms of overall diversity, I mean, there's obviously uh, some concerns, some critiques of the composition of the court, that it ought to be more diverse in terms of folks from different kinds of backgrounds, maybe experience in other branches of government, for instance, some people think might be useful. Uh, some experience in certain kinds of private sector experiences. 
experiences in um, public advocacy, uh, like 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 Justice Ginsburg had. Um, you know, those things tend to happen from time to time. Like we already mentioned, Earl Warren being the governor of California, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg having been an advocate for for women's rights, um, Thurgood Marshall, obviously, um, uh, coming from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. But for the most part, you know, people who did really great in law school, practiced for a bit, became judges, that's kind of the profile. And more recently, at least according to some critics, judges who quote unquote don't have a huge, you know, track record or paper trail because of this, you know, idea that it's become more difficult to get confirmed in the current political environment, you know, if you have, if you've staked out certain positions. So, you know, I think it would be nice to see a, a court that has a, a more diverse set of backgrounds. And, and, and finally, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg finally uh, famously said, you know, when asked about, you know, uh, a female representation on the court, there'll be enough women Supreme Court justices when all nine are women. And, and, <laughs> and you know, I'm kind of with her. I mean, not the point, of course, she was making isn't that all nine Supreme Court justices should be women, but rather, right. well, why couldn't it be, right? I mean, it's, it was all nine men for the vast majority of its history. You know, what, why not? <laughs> When you were a clerk, was it fun? I mean, was it exciting? Did you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm running around shaping, like shaping the national culture, and my work's going to have a historical legacy? Like, I mean, yeah. was that fun? Was it exciting? It was. It was, and I, and my experience, I think, is um, I don't say unique, but particular in a way I should describe. So I I clerked in part for a retired justice. So I was clerking for. Uh, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, blah, 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 let me take that again. I was clerking for the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, Abner Mikva. And a quick digression about Judge Mikva, wonderful man. He actually officiated at my wedding. Oh, wow. Ab worked in all three branches of government. He was a, a, a very distinguished congressperson from the Chicago area. Uh, the, he was then appointed to the Court of Appeals. He was the very last judge appointed by Jimmy Carter. His nomination was vigorously opposed by the National Rifle Association, but he was nonetheless confirmed, but not in an unclose vote. And at that time, those were less common. And then he was President Clinton's White House counsel. Uh, oh, wow. So he worked in all three branches of government and an absolutely wonderful, wonderful man. So he was probably most responsible, not probably, he was most responsible for me obtaining my clerkship with Justice Brennan. I clerked for uh, William J. Brennan Jr., but he was already retired. So uh, retired justices have one clerk. And Justice Brennan's seat was taken by Justice Souter, David H. Souter. And they had a wonderful arrangement whereby Justice Brennan's clerk also worked in the chambers of Justice Souter. So I spent half of my time working with Justice Brennan on uh, a law review article he wrote, uh, commencement addresses. He was teaching a class at Georgetown. So I assisted him with all of those things. And then I also spent half my time essentially doing the same thing that all of Justice Souter's clerks did. But I took on half the number of cases that each of the other Justice Souter clerks did. 
And the reason I give that background is because it gave me a relatively unique experience. I mean, when I first got up to the court, uh, I was I would have lunch with Justice Brennan every day when I first started. He had a big partner's desk. We sat on opposite sides of his partner's desk and had lunch every day and talked about whatever we needed to talk about. And I, I mean, I pinched myself. I mean, I was sitting across the desk from the justice responsible for Baker versus Carr. That's one person, one vote. New York Times v. Sullivan, wow. uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 34 years as an active justice on the court, one of the most important figures of the 20th century. And, and not just in law, just one of the most important figures of the 20th century. And also a delight. Wait, wait, were you like nervous? I mean, when, when you first start having lunch with, are you like, because I, I, I just, I, I would, I, and I don't think I intimidate easily, but I would be, that would be a very intimidating experience for me. Yeah, I would say I, the, the only reason I wasn't intimidated was because Justice Brennan was such, such a gracious, delightful, wonderful, welcoming man. I mean, impish smile, a great sense of humor, just a delightful man. Justice Souter, also a wonderful guy and, 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 and a great Supreme Court justice, had a much more formal style. When he came to court on the weekends, we almost all worked you know, seven days a week. We were at the court on the weekends. Dressing down for Justice Souter was, instead of his normal three-piece suit and tie, he was in a blazer and tie. That was sort of his weekend attire. So Justice Souter, generous, lovely, friendly man, but, you know, much more formal. And so I think establishing that rapport with Justice Souter and feeling at ease with Justice Souter took a little more time. But Justice Brennan was just the kind of guy that made you feel, you know, like you kind of knew him your whole life almost instantly. So so let's talk a little more particularly. Yesterday was a big day. And the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast uh, was because it is a big day. And, and you had mentioned in our hallowed dishwasher room that you were doing another room where you were going to talk a little bit about these cases. So yeah. So let's talk about these two cases. The first case was a case about Obamacare. And and as I was reading about it, it seemed like the, the, the logic of them upholding Obamacare was that the, the, I guess it was the folks in Texas that had filed the suit didn't have standing. So they, they weren't actually damaged by the law. Was, is, that, is that correct? Yeah. So there were two kinds of plaintiffs. There were state plaintiffs, not just Texas, but a number of states that basically made the argument that they the, the harm to the states was that more people signing up for Obamacare would cost the state money because one of you know some of that is through um state medical programs Medicaid some of that is state money and us uh, there were also individual plaintiffs individual uh, citizens who there's a mandate under Obamacare that you have to have health insurance but just for a little background, as some people may know, right, originally when the law was passed, basically what the law said is everyone has to have health insurance. You can get it through your employer. You can get it in a bunch of ways. But if you don't have it any other way, there's now a system for signing up for health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, and we want to make sure everyone has insurance. And if you don't- And the penalty would be a financial one, right? Exactly. Through the IRS, 
I believe it was $695. That may have depended on how much you were making. I'm not really sure, to be honest. Well, the law was initially challenged on the basis that it was unconstitutional because Congress simply didn't have the power to tell people they had to have insurance. In a very well-known case, Justice Roberts writing the opinion for the court, he said that it fell under the taxing power uh, because of this, this tax that, that, that was involved. Well, during uh, – uh, And this was something that really did not endear Roberts to <laughs> the, the conservatives that you know, put him on the court. I, I mean I remember that decision. And yes. it, it was – he was not popular with the Republican base. Yeah. Well, I think you know, we could go on to a digression about the political archaeology of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, as many will remember, of course. And I'm not you know, a politics expert by any means measure. But it was such a quote unquote great issue for uh for Republicans. And they ran on, you know, we got to get rid of Obamacare. We got to get rid of Obamacare. And then the tables turned, right? And it seemed like eventually people came around to the view. I, I mean obviously I'm talking about just in terms of percentages that it was working and it was great and people were happy to be insured and tens of millions of extra people were insured. And it really, the tables really turned on that as a political, uh, as a political issue. Um, again, that's a digression, but yeah, absolutely. At the time, you know, the Republicans just thought that was the winning issue for them. Uh, and, and, and it turned and it really did change. So after that decision, uh, Congress uh, eventually got rid of the penalty. They reset it to zero dollars. And so this latest challenge said, well, wait a second. Isn't the law now unconstitutional again? Because the penalty is now zero. Uh, And if the real idea was that the tax was what made it constitutional, and now the tax is zero, it's unconstitutional again. So that was the case before the court in this third big ACA case, Affordable Care Act case. And by a seven to two margin, the justices ruled that both the state plaintiffs and the individual plaintiffs didn't have standing to sue. This is a jurisdictional concept. In order to bring a case, the plaintiff must have standing, which means there must be some harm to them that they're asking the court to redress. Uh, If I think a law is unconstitutional, I can't just go to a court and say, you know, it really bothers me that there's this unconstitutional law in the books. For instance, let's say I thought it was unconstitutional that you had to be a certain age to vote. And as a 57-year-old man, I went into court and said, you know, I think 16-year-olds should be able to vote. The Constitution says so. The court would say, well, that's very interesting, but we really need to have someone between 16 and 18 here as a plaintiff because they're the one who's being harmed by this allegedly unconstitutional law. You're 57. You can vote. Get out of here. Because if we didn't have the standing thing, right, the courts would already the courts are already flooded, right? But if you didn't have the standing rule, courts would just be flooded, right? Well, potentially. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know that I have any empirical data on how many cases you know are screened out on standing grounds. The Supreme Court's docket is entirely discretionary. Well, almost entirely discretionary, meaning that the justices just decide which cases to take. Other than a few things where the Constitution says the Supreme Court must hear certain kinds of cases, you know, virtually everything they do is simply a vote. And if four or more justices want to hear a case, then it's put on the docket. And if three or fewer justices want to hear a case, 
it is not put on the docket, but it could come back. I'm not sure this has completely ended the Affordable Care Act litigation. And of course, and of course, facts on the ground could also change that, changes in the law, uh, you know, expanding it in ways, refining the legislation, you know, that may make some of these issues go away. I don't know. At least that's yeah, at and, least and, possible. And all- also, it seems like one of these things where oftentimes big legislation like this, you look at, you know, in in the Roosevelt era, like when things like um, Social Security are passed or, or you know, w- when things like Medicare come about, often things like this, right, are, you know, in the Great Society, I think it was LBJ, right, that did med- Medicare. Oftentimes there's vociferous opposition and then eventually – it becomes part of society. Now it's a, it's a bipartisan. Everybody loves Medicare. Everybody loves social security sure, you know, no, a, a, across parties. And so I wonder if this is the leg, this will be the legacy of the affordable care act that as you were saying, remarking before already, it's getting increasingly popular. And once it just gets more integrated into American society, people are just going to accept it. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's two issues I want to kind of address in response to the comment you made. One is, sort of on the lines you were talking about, right? If you look at so many of the pro- federal and, and, and even state programs that we now sort of take for granted, and I think that most folks think are a good idea, right? They had vociferous political opposition at the time, cries of- By the way, we are probably the only two people that both use the word vociferous <laughs> within the same 60 second cut. It's not a word that's thrown around very often. I appreciate your use of it. Well, I guess so you put it in my ear and then it came right out. <laughs> um, I, liter- I literally put it in your ear. Yes. And you know, that's a side note that we may or may not get into about the use of the word literally. Um, um, and also, well, no, I'm not going to go there. Um, so yeah, there's political opposition, it's socialism, it's, you know, government control. And, and so many of these things now are taken for granted. In fact, the ACA itself, I was always tickled by the idea that people would talk about government is taking over your, your healthcare on two, on two lines. First of all, there is a difference, an important difference between health insurance and healthcare. And I'm not even saying that the, the latter is a bad idea, but the idea that this all just got thrown in together, nationalized healthcare systems like they have in, say, the UK. And of course, there's also private healthcare as an alternative to people who want it and can afford it, versus nationalized health insurance, which is, you know, the government is the single payor, or at least one of the payors. But all of the hospitals and doctors and such stay the way they are. It's not some government-run system. I mean, that is an important distinction. That, of course, completely lost, it seems like, on a lot of people in the debate. Um, but more fundamentally, um, Medicare is like the biggest health insurance system in America by far. You know, the government's already up to its elbows in the health insurance business. And it's just like all of the objections to this just seemed wacky to me. Yeah, yeah, Obamacare is a right-wing solution. I mean, it is a conservative solution in the sense that it's not saying there's no. It's not saying Medicare for everybody. That it's not creating a new government insurance system. It created exchanges, but these are all exchanges with private insurance companies. I mean, that's the thing that I thought was like, like if you're conservative, and in fact, it was interesting. The Heritage Foundation actually proposed this kind of a system. In response to when Hillary Clinton was trying to do something much more like a national health care project, this was the conservative response. No, no, the way we fix health care is a private market-based insurance system. 
and people just lose sight of that. You know, what's interesting. I mean, we'll not, you know, I, I, I hate to get into the business of psychoanalyzing my fellow citizens and voters, but I'll never. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> but I'll never know. I'll never know the extent to which this opposition really was solely political. It's Obamacare. And, right. And it's political. And we, you know, I think that, 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 that uh, McConnell and others said early on, right, we're just going to make sure that everything Obama tries to do fails and make sure he's a one-term president. And that was sort of the guiding, you know, their North Star. And the extent to which some people really felt on principled grounds, the government telling people they must have health insurance is a, is a violation of their liberty. And I don't want to trivialize that view, but, you know, telling people they have to wear a seatbelt, I guess these people would say is a violation of their liberty and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I I don't get it. But again, you know, that's my political leanings. That's my philosophical leanings. And I want to circle back. I said there were two points. One was your point about how so many of these programs have become not only accepted, but, but very much appreciated. The other is the interaction between the court and the other branches. <clears throat> Sorry. In terms of the interaction between the court and the other branches, in terms of when they are really not in alignment with each other, right? There's a history throughout um, the Supreme Court's, um, or there's a, there's, there's a reality throughout the Supreme Court's history where the court has sometimes been very much out of step with Congress and the country in general, right? I mean, during the, the so-called Lochner era, um, when uh, workplace protections and other sorts of things like this were first coming in, the court was striking them down on constitutional grounds, now a concept which seems crazy to us. Then, of course, during the civil rights era, uh, during the Warren court, much of the time when Justice Brennan sat, you had a court that was out in front of where Congress was in terms of civil rights, Brown versus Board of Education, et cetera. And of course, Thurgood Marshall, <clears throat> and of course, Thurgood Marshall, such an important part of some of those decisions at the Supreme Court. And I think we're seeing potentially another era like that now. It, it's, it remains to be seen because I think to some extent, this current court, both before and after uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, uh, is perceived as sort of being more conservative than the country in general. I think and, that's in, indisputable. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it is. And, and you know, to what extent will that manifest itself? Well, so far, it's been, you know, a mixed bag, right? Sometimes they've done things that sort of fit that paradigm. And sometimes, you know, putting it the way you put it, they, they've disappointed the conservatives. That's only one way, right? That's one perspective. Sometimes they haven't, they haven't run so counter to what the country seems to want. Sometimes they have. And, and just to add as a footnote, I don't want to make this sound like it's purely political, right? These are legal decisions uh, based on legal doctrine. But we all understand that, you know, there's a lot of play at the joints and, there is a reason why in so many highly politically charged cases, we see five to four, six to three, right? Both things are true, right? Of course, there's legal doctrine. Justices don't just do whatever they want. On the other hand, their political orientation, their view about how the law is supposed to be interpreted often results in things breaking down that way. No, it's interesting because you were just pointing out that this this kind of 
dialectic, this change where, you know, in, in the 60, 50, you know, in the civil rights era, you know, we have a court that's seem to be more progressive and out in front of the culture. And now we have one that seems to be more traditional than the culture. Yesterday, we had a kind of split decision or split, you know, it seemed like the big decision on on Obamacare was sort of defending was, you know, kind of defending something that this progressive goal of getting universal health coverage right although def- then, although the- defending it is a is is a, is a maybe a little of a misnomer right because essentially yeah, what yeah, they said yeah. was we're not going to decide whether right your right. issue has legal merit because you don't have standing to bring your issue but right. but in terms of the result obamacare stands absolutely it's a victory for the it's the left and but then at the same point, the, the the other decision, where where the where, which was the city of Philadelphia versus the archdiocese, I think of Philadelphia, that was a very conservative decision. So could we could we talk a little bit sure. about about this about this case, which is about I think same sex foster parents. Sure, yeah, and the the, the case involved a um, a foster care program. CSS is the initials uh, Catholic Social Services. Like, which right. is an art organization associated with the archdiocese, but uh, Catholic Social Services was the was the um, the party in the case. And essentially, what happened in this case is that the city of Philadelphia decided to um, decertify, I think might be the right word, CSS from doing foster placements because of its policy that it would not place foster children with. Uh, married gay couples on the grounds that that was against Catholic religious doctrine. And so they didn't want to place, make foster placements with such couples. Um, The city did this for two articulated reasons, according to the opinion, the Supreme Court opinion. One was they wanted to serve the important interest of placing, making placements. And the other, they wanted to avoid liability uh, because you know LGBTQ uh, couples could claim that this was discrimination against them, and so that's that was sort of the articulated rationale that the court looked at. And I think there's two things to think about in this case. The first is there's there's a, a, a case from 1990, ironically written by Justice Scalia, in which the court held five to four that a law which is generally applicable to everyone, doesn't single out religion, but incidentally burdens the free exercise of religion, is not unconstitutional. It does not violate the First Amendment. That case involved the use of peyote in Oregon by Native Americans as a religious practice, and they were terminated from their job with the unemployment office of the state because they were using um, this drug. And Justice Scalia said, that's okay. Even though firing from their job incidentally affects their this practice, it's a generally applicable law, and that's okay. Conservatives have not like this decision since it was made. In its wake, so-called religious freedom restoration acts were passed in Congress and in many states, basically saying any law that burdens the free exercise of religion substantially should be subject to so-called strict scrutiny as a constitutional principle. So that was really the underlying thing here was we want to get rid of Smith. It wasn't simply give us our certification back so that we can continue to make foster placements. It was the court should overrule Smith and more substantially scrutinize any burden 
any alleged burden on the exercise of religion. So although the court decided unanimously in this case that what Philadelphia did was wrong, they didn't decide it under Smith. What they did was a two-step analysis. First, they said Smith does not apply because this isn't a generally applicable law. And I have to say, I read something today, which I haven't had a chance to research, that I thought was very interesting. In the opinion, the Chief Justice says that the reason it's not generally applicable is because the commissioner, this is a a Philadelphia official responsible for overseeing the foster system, can make exceptions. It isn't the case that it's, it's a blanket rule. It's a rule where the commissioner can simply make discretionary exceptions. But I read an article today, and I haven't had time to research it, honestly, that said that was a little bit of prestidigitation by the chief. And mind you, all nine justices, uh, I think, signed on to this opinion. Because according to this article, the discretion involved placements individual placements. The commissioner had the ability to say, an agency has made a placement, but I'm going to say, no, that's not a good placement. Not the discretion to approve or not approve certain agencies. And if that's true, that would, that would, that would cast a little doubt on the logic of the opinion. But in any event, the court said, Smith doesn't apply. This isn't a generally applicable law. Therefore, we will apply strict scrutiny. And this decision doesn't survive strict scrutiny for the following reason. First of all, what the city is doing isn't going to result in more placements. It's going to result in less placements because even if CSS refuses to place with married gay couples, many other services do. And indeed, CSS is happy to refer a gay married couple to another service. They're not trying to stop, says the court's reasoning gay couples from from fostering. They're just saying, we don't want to do that because we think it violates our religious scruples, and so we'll refer you somewhere else. And therefore, CSS gets to keep going. You can't decertify them. All nine justices agreed with that. However... That's, that's, that's wild, right? That, that, that all nine justices are in... in, in agreement on that. Yes, but I think it's when you dig deeper, it's a very fractured court. You really have three groups of three. You have the th- you have three justices who explicitly said that they want to overturn Smith. Justices Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas said explicitly, we think Smith should be overturned. All g- laws that burden religion in any meaningful way should be subject to strict scrutiny. You had three justices, quote unquote, in the middle on this case, uh, the chief, Justices Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, or Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, who said, we're not saying Smith should be overturned. We have our concerns about Smith, but we just want to write separately to say, even if Smith were overturned, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And here's why. So if you kind of look at those two together, you really have six justices who indicated yeah, we would probably overturn Smith, but that isn't necessary in this case because Smith doesn't apply, right? And there's this concept in ju- in jurisprudence, not always followed, frankly, at the Supreme Court or at other levels, where the court should do the least it needs to do to resolve a case. And so if Smith doesn't apply, you don't overturn Smith because you can decide the case on narrower grounds. And then, of course, you have three justices, uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, 
and Breyer, who I think probably don't want to see Smith overturned and indeed probably would have liked to have seen this case go the other way. I can't say that for certain, but that's, that's my suspicion. But signed on to the case being decided on much narrower, very fact-specific grounds because that's sort of better than nothing, right? If they dissent and say, no, 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 CSS should not be allowed to refuse to place with gay married couples. Well, now you have a different configuration of the court. You have the other six justices. Well, now maybe they decide to do something different. So there's an example where even though, yes, it's based on legal precedent and it's based on legal reasoning and applying law to facts and all of that stuff, there is some strategic thinking to how you decide what to do on a case. Those three justices disappear from the majority opinion. The majority opinion may go further than the opinion that was written. And Justice Tom, or the Chief Justice, rather, I will say, has developed something of a reputation in certain cases. I think it's sometimes overstated by the right and, the, and, the, and, and others for crafting these sorts of compromises where in an attempt to get more consensus on the court and to do something less extreme, he, he'll, he'll build these sort of middle ground opinions. I don't think it's true that that's in his core and that's sort of his judicial philosophy, but I think that is something he's done in certain cases. Do you think that's because he's worried about the integrity of the institution? I mean, I've heard commentators say that basically Roberts doesn't want to see a court viewed like the Congress, like most people, mo when, you, when you do kind of polls about opinions on the court, you know, the court is one of the few government, federal government institutions, branches that people still respect. And I mean, I wonder how much of this is Roberts trying to have an institutional legacy of keeping the court at, looked at as less partisan or something? Yeah, I that's a tough one for me, because I think, I guess the way I would answer that is say, I think that's true to some extent. I think it's been overstated, in my opinion. And, and without going through, you know, dozens of opinions, it'd be hard to make this case. But I, I just think it's true to some extent. I think it's been presented as sort of at the, at the end of the day, his guiding light is this sort of institutionalist principle that you just articulated. And I would say it's just more situational. I think it depends on what the case is about. Um, and yeah, I guess that's all I would say about that. So although this Philadelphia Foster case was decided on these narrow grounds, what's really at stake here in terms of this so-called religious freedom discussion in the United States is whether folks are going to be able to exempt themselves from all sorts of laws on religious grounds. And, and the concern is that religious institutions religious businesses, religious individuals will be able to, for instance, discriminate against, say, the LGBTQI community because of so-called religious beliefs. And, right, we can't have a world where it is possible that anyone can simply say, because of a good faith religious belief, I should be exempted from any law I say. I mean, obviously, no one thinks that if a religion had a religious tradition of beating up a stranger every Thursday night, 
that they would be exempted from the assault and battery laws because it was a religious belief that they had to beat up a stranger every Thursday night. And so the debate over whether folks ought to be able to discriminate or more accurately be exempted from discrimination laws because of religious beliefs is complicated and, and, and problematic, right? And so that's the real debate that's underlying this. When should religious organizations, religious individuals be accommodated? And when do they have to accept the idea that a law that is not singling you out, a law that applies to everyone, has to apply to you even if it violates your personal religious beliefs? And that's what's really at stake, largely sidestepped in this case, but still very much an issue. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think this is going to be the flashpoint in religious civil liberties kind of discussions, especially because the LGBTQI uh, conversation is, is probably the best example because religious traditions are very divided on this, right? You have... A lot of, um, I'd say, kind of progressive institutions that are inclusive of the LGBTQI community, and then you have traditionalist communities that aren't, right? And and what do you do with that? I mean, like, what do you like? Is it, you know, there's one thing about debating religiously about how you interpret the Bible, and lots of, you know, people have have come up with have basically said, no, you know, the Bible's not really talking about. It's not really um, condemning these sort of relationships and things like this. And we need to re-envision how we interpret things. And other communities don't. And what do you do with that? Because is what you're saying. I mean, it's one thing that you're saying, well, we don't do gay weddings or something. But then it, it's, it becomes like, what about these auxiliary services that religious institutions provide, right? That often states subsidized yes. I mean, like it, it, it's just very confusing i mean i remember i was talking with a guy who was like one of the head legal counsels for the archdiocese of philadelphia this is years ago this was in the 90s or something i was working for this nonprofit, and basically the city of philadelphia would basically pay the archdiocese to take certain students into their schools who had disabilities because these certain catholic schools were just really good at it and it it saved the school they, they could better accommodate and I said, well, how do you get around that constitutionally? They're paying you, like, for a reason. And they said, well, shh, we just don't talk about it. <laughs> and, but these are the kind of things I think you're right. They're, they're going to be exceedingly complicated. Um, and, and I don't know how it will shake out. Yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, you, I, I really do feel like you have religious institutions and religious individuals essentially saying we ought to be able to discriminate because our religion says that the people we want to discriminate against are violating our religious principles. And I find that highly problematic. Uh, up until now, the court has not, the court has been able to sort of narrowly deal with these cases. But, but yeah, this, this, this cultural conversation isn't going to end. And, and yeah, and, and you know, there, there is a sense, right, in which, look, if, if, a traditional religious institution, whether it's a synagogue or a Catholic church or a traditional Protestant parish, right? They're probably not going to be incredibly welcoming to polyamorous people, right? Which is a real community. I've got friends in that community that live that lifestyle and they're lovely people, right? Who I find really, you know, interesting to talk with. But so what do you do? So how do you, so that's probably legitimate, right? On religious grounds, you can say, look, in our religious tradition, we have certain kinds of sexual ethics and, uh, you know, this is, you know, you, you probably, we're probably not going to 
put you on the board of the church or whatever if you're polyamorous. But then, where, but then, where does that end? Like, where does a religious institution's ability to make normal, eth- normative, ethical judgments blend into their life in the public square? Yeah, and the the jurisprudence in this area is 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 too complicated an issue for us to tackle today. But I will say, when it comes to positions that involve the hierarchy of a religious organization, religion related positions, the law is very clear on this. I mean, that's not problematic. It, when it gets tricky is in some of the areas we're talking about where it has nothing to do with someone having a religious related position in the church. And by the way, that would even include, include say a Sunday school teacher, but you know, can you impose the same thing on the security guard at your church or synagogue or mosque or whatever? Can you refuse as a baker? Right. That's where, that's where it gets more complicated. So you left the world of this erudite, you know, deliberation, uh, you know, as a Supreme Court clerk, and 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 now you're in the film industry. How does that like? What, what is it? Like, what took you from um, from a sort of from that kind of legal world to? I mean, you're still a lawyer, obviously, but what took you into working to make films? I mean, why was like how, how why what's the trajectory there? Yeah, so it's. I, so in some ways, I would say that my my years in the law were more of a of a digression in some ways. I, I, and in some ways, I'm just complicated in terms of my interests. So I went to USC film school as an undergraduate. Uh, so, you know, I was I was a filmmaking major, essentially, at at the University of Southern California. And, and even as a young kid, I knew I wanted to do something to do with movies. I always loved film. But I wasn't what I would call an artsy fartsy kid. You know, I wasn't hanging out in the D building, which was the drama building at my high school. I was, you know, I was a good student. So I was a college prep kind of student. I did well in school. And so that kind of just put me on an academic track. Um, But I still went to film school. I transferred. My first year of college, I went to the University of Chicago. And, you know, it's the great books curriculum, really a wonderful thing. But I just wanted to do film so much that I transferred to, to film school. And after I graduated, I worked in advertising for a while. And then I eventually went back to law school because I also did have an interest in being a lawyer. I, you know, that they talk about this thing about thinking like a lawyer. I did have that kind of mind where I thought in that way. And I did very well in law school. And that kind of track that puts you on a little bit of a track. If you're a, if you're an excellent student in law school, you have this opportunity to potentially clerk. And you know why not? I mean, it's 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 a it's a really cool thing to do. It's interesting and the lifelong friendship. I mean, Judge Mikva became a lifelong friend. As I mentioned, he officiated my wedding. I'm I'm very close with his family. He passed away some years ago, and uh, as did his wife uh, Zoe. And you know, I was very close to them. So the relationships, the experience, it was great. Uh, and after I was, when I was starting to complete my second clerkship with Justices Brennan and Souter and thinking about what I wanted to do, I was planning to join a Washington, D.C. law firm, very much kind of what you would expect someone who had clerked on the Supreme Court to do. Um, and then I just sort of had this revelation that it, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I started reaching out to entertainment law firms in Los Angeles because I wanted to go back in that direction. So in a way, law school and the clerking, if you look at sort of all of my experience from, say, graduating from high school till now, in a way, that was more of the exception. And my interest in film was really more of the rule. 
So I wound up coming to Los Angeles and working at a very small but prestigious talent firm uh, called Gang Tire, Raymer and Brown. The firm represented and still does in, in most cases, I, I assume, Steven Spielberg, Bob Zemeckis, Clint Eastwood, just on and on, lots of really great directors and actors and producers and writers. And that's what I wound up doing after I finished my clerkship. I went to do entertainment law. Very unusual for someone who had had my sort of legal trajectory. Not unheard of. And interestingly, one of the reasons I wound up at Gang Tire, I believe, is because one of the lawyers there, he was just retiring when I joined the firm, was Payson Wolf, who had clerked for Earl Warren. Wow. So it was one of the few entertainment law firms, frankly, that gave a damn that I had the background I had. I mean, most entertainment, wow. most entertainment firms that I reached out to didn't even respond. I mean, I didn't, you needed to have some experience as a transactional lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I wound up at Gang Tire. I practiced for a few years and that took me into the film business as a non-lawyer. So yeah, it was, it was, it was more of getting back to kind of what I wanted to do, or maybe more accurate to say, I wanted to combine law and entertainment. And, and that enabled me to do that. Maybe that's a little fair, because it's not as if I went from being a lawyer to being an actor or being a film director. You know, I was a suit, as they say, you know, a lawyer in the business and then ultimately an executive in the business. You know, it's not, it's, it's not like I became a film director. So, so what do you do like in the film business now? I mean, are you on sets? Are you, yeah. are you, are you eating from the craft services table? <laughs> are you, you know, like, everybody's uh, eating from the craft services table, craft. Scott. I worked on. I was a PA on a few films, and that was the like that was my biggest like education. Oh, we call it craft services, or, and or it was crafty, like, crafty for short. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so are you on set? Are you are you watching stuff? Getting what? Like what? What do you do in the film industry? Yeah. So so. There's a current answer, and you said, "What do I do now?" So what I do now is, I, I have this great split personality, and I have to say, throughout my career, it's been both episodic, where I've done very different things for different stretches, and also I've been able to mix things up and have very uh, different things on my plate at the same time. So I'm a film producer, and I just finished a film that I, I spent a couple of years working on, and for that film, yeah, I was on set the whole time. We shot in Buffalo. And I was in Buffalo for 12 weeks. And then we shot in Japan for two weeks. I was in Japan. And, and I produced that film. It's called Bashira. And we've just finished it. And now we'll be, you know, selling it. We independently financed it. So we now have to, you know, find a distribution uh, on Netflix or another streaming service, you know, or to theaters, whatever, around the world. And independent, and, for people that don't know the film, industry, my guess is like independent. It's, it's not like Paramount or somebody said, Here's the money. Exactly. Make the film. You raise the money. And now because it's independent, you've got to figure out how to get it exactly. out. Exactly. And that means that we own it and control it, right? It, rather than sort of making the film for a major studio, here's the money. You're an employee. Make this film for us. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? We raised the money ourselves, made the film. And so now we, it's in our control to decide what to do with the film. And we'll be showing it to various distributors and doing all that stuff now. But at the same time, I'm also of counsel at a law firm. So I and and I still do practice entertainment law for for a, a, a set of clients through my firm. And so I get to do both. Um, and I love it, you know, because it really does enable me to have that variety, which I've always had a short attention span. 
you know, I'm a quick study. I'm reasonably smart. I figure stuff out. But doing one thing or one kind of thing is really hard for me. And so um, that's what I do now. I'm of counsel at a firm, working with certain clients of our firm. uh, and, And I'm also a film producer. And I have, this film is done. I have another film that is gonna start shooting at the beginning of next year. And I have five other projects in various states of development. Some sort of ready to go and we're trying to find a home for them. Some where the script still needs work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm a lawyer and a producer. Um, now, when I started as an entertainment lawyer, uh, after I clerked, uh, that was all I did. I worked at Gang Tire. But then eventually, I one of my clients became the chairman of Village Roadshow Pictures. And I eventually followed him over to Village Roadshow I was the uh, head of business and legal affairs initially, uh, but then eventually became the president of the company. And I wound up spending 10 years at Village Roadshow, um, where we co-produced along with major studios, usually Warner Brothers, but occasionally another studio. We made movies with Sony, with Paramount. Um, you know, we made like about 60 movies while I was there. Uh, eventually, I left Village Roadshow. I was a full-time law and film professor for 10 years. And then about three years ago, I started producing again. I stopped teaching, remained affiliated with the law firm that I'm with and started producing. When I was a kid, TV was the JV team, right? (laughs) And film was the varsity team, right? And even you look at like, I remember as a kid, I love shows like The Incredible Hulk and Knight Rider and stuff, but they didn't look like the way films look, right? Just the, the, the kind of film they were shot on everything. It looked so it does it does seem like now because when you're watching a serial drama uh it it looks the same as a film right it doesn't it doesn't look like it's shot on on campier um cameras or or film um the actors are a list actors right i mean if you would have told me i mean I, what what i forget there was a sci fi show on c b s that Holly Berry starred in, and if you had told me Holly Berry was going to go do it tv show on cbs i'm like no way she's a film star that was you know and now people do that i mean that's you know uh some of the best actors and actresses are doing tv i mean do you how do, what do you think is the future of that is, is that a threat to filmmaking will these things exist in a complementary fashion i mean like how do you see this emergence of the, the the television streaming kind of industry how does that relate to the traditional kind of film industry yeah i think there's several different trends that are all kind of interrelated with regard to this issue and i think sometimes it's a little overstated in terms of what it all means but i but i think they're real trends so I'll try to go through them real quick. First, you know, there's an observation that the, that that the major studios and they don't produce all of. And well, first let me back up. We're talking about the United States right now, or maybe the U.S. and Canada, right? We could take an international view, and that would further complicate things. But let's look at it from a sort of American-centric view first. Um, the major studios are making fewer films, and certainly there is a greater emphasis on so-called tentpole films big event films, you know, to take the most obvious example, if you look at Disney, between Marvel films and Pixar films and Star Wars films, that is now an enormous portion of their theatrical portfolio. And if you look at other studios, there's more of an emphasis on these big budget, big event films than there used to be. And as a result, 
the the sort of material that we often think of when we think think about television uh, has migrated over there in some of these limited series and extended series. You know, the examples going back to Sopranos and Mad Men and right up until to until today. So that's one trend that that the studios aren't making as many of the kinds of films that looked like some of the best drama that is now, and for that matter, comedy, I suppose, that is now being done through the streaming services. So that's the first trend. Second, it is true that this content that's being produced is more cinematic, right? In terms of its production value, in terms of its design, right? There was a time when television was quicker and cheaper and in some cases, multi-camera as opposed to single camera. So it's more cinematic, it, 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 it visually, and in terms of its production value, its creativity, it looks more like film, absolutely. Third, the boundary between what it means to say film and TV is breaking down, right? Because the streaming services and, and to some extent other networks are making movies that although they don't go into theaters or go into theaters, if at all, on a very limited basis, for all intents and purposes, they look just like movies. So it's not just series, limited or otherwise, it's also films that are now being made by streaming services and others, which look just like other films. Now, some of those like The Irishman or on a much more limited basis, Roma, do also appear in theaters, but many of them don't. But there are other trends as well. I mean, independent cinema is alive and well. It's not as if those films aren't being made. Is it harder to make them? Sure. But whether it's very low-budget independent cinema, the kinds of movies that go to film festivals and if they're sufficiently loved, ultimately find an audience, get bought by some of the big companies, the streamers, the studios. There's also a lot of indie style, if I could say that, filmmakers that, you know, whether it's, oh, I don't know, P.T. Anderson or the Cone Brothers or whoever, that, that are making great cinema. And then the final trend I want to mention is, is movie theaters themselves, right? Regardless of the content, there's, there's this idea that movie theaters are going to go away because people can watch content in their home, whether it's through a streaming service or otherwise. And obviously, all of the major studios are, are now creating streaming services. Most of them already have. And I don't think movie theaters are going to go away. I really don't. Is it possible that there will be fewer screens than there are right now? Is it possible that the model will change? I mean, a Pixar movie opened today, right? Luca. You can go see Luca in a theater, I believe. You can go on to Disney Plus and pay 30 bucks and watch it today. Um, and if I'm wrong about Luca, there are certainly other movies that follow that model. On HBO Max, right, In the Heights, you can go see it in the theater. For the first month of its release, you can watch it on HBO Max. So the models may change, but I still think, A, there are certain sorts of movies where a big screen and the sound and all of that adds a lot. Secondly, the social experience. <clears throat> you know, people want to go to the, the movies. They want to laugh with other people. They want to scream with other people. They want to feel that emotion with other people around them. And the popcorn. There's nothing like movie theater popcorn. <laughs> there's just nothing like it. And there's the popcorn. You know, yeah, I was walking down the street in, in Manhattan, 
And I walked by an AMC theater. I was going home from getting some drinks with some friends. And I I walked into the AMC theater and just bought a thing of popcorn and went home. Lo- oh my God, that's hilarious. I, I just and I watched some stuff on my iPad and I just sat and ate popcorn and it was so good. I mean, I, I, it was delicious. I love that. The other thing I want to say about theaters is I think they got very complacent, right? In a system where they had a guaranteed window and you know they got lazy. And I think why there are there. I don't want to make this sound simple. There are rights issues. There are mar- there's lots of issues. But we should be in a world now where more than it is done, not like all of these things are unheard of, but they're rare, closed circuit concerts in movie theaters, including live, not just syndicated performances of say an opera, but actually live performances, sporting events. I'm a huge football fan, as you know, a soccer fan for our American listeners. (laughs) I, I, I go to pubs at seven in the morning that are packed to the gills to watch an English football game. The Super Bowl, the Kentucky Derby, whatever. I know, again, there are television rights issues, but I believe there are ways for theaters to be more imaginative. What about live performances, live music? When I go to a theater on a Tuesday afternoon and watch a movie with three people, or sometimes literally alone, and I've done that many times. I lived for several years right next door to a movie theater. And I would just walk over in the afternoon and catch a movie. Sometimes I was literally alone. That's not a sensible model. Do something else with the space. And so I think theaters need to evolve, but I don't think they're going away. This idea that there will be no movie theaters in X years, I don't think there's any chance that that's true. Zero chance. Yeah, no, I think that you're right. I mean, there's something about going to movies, especially certain films that come out, like the Star Wars movie or something, where people are talking about it, right? And you want to have the social experience of seeing it with people and also talking about it with people. Where, you know, so I think, yeah, I agree with you. And you want it on a big screen with the sound. And then, of course, there's IMAX and there's other sort of more immersive experiences. I think there will be more evolution in those areas out of necessity. And that'll be a good thing. Steve, this has been great. Thank you. We've talked about many things, and I've I've had a great time talking with you. And uh, and I want to invite um, all of our listeners who are on Clubhouse. And if you're not, you should get on because it's fun to come to the Dishwasher Diaries it has, Club because it, it, it it's great. It has been a pleasure. I also, as you know, talk about movies on Clubhouse. Not it's there's lots of people who do that. So film talk isn't as distinctive. But yes, Dishwasher Diaries. Is so much fun. And I've got to say, we've clearly tapped a nerve because people so relate to this idea that dishwasher loading and dishwashing, it's, 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 it's a proxy for life. Steve, thanks again for coming on. Been great, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.